Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Rillet. Coming up on today's program today, we have Chandra Kurt, the wine expert, of course, a regular contributor to Monocle. Also, Alexander Andrist is here from Swiss Info. She's right beside me at the table. Uh, what's caught your eye in the papers, in the world of media this weekend? Well, the European Space Agency warns of record temperatures for Europe this summer. And with Chandra here, I'm wondering how that's going to affect the wine uh, harvest. Very good. I think Chandra's going to have a lot on that uh, as well. We'll also be getting the latest news from Bangkok, from where our correspondent will bring us up to date, of course, on the parliament's failing to elect elect a new prime minister. And we'll also speak to Christian Jot Jenny, founder of the Festival de Jazz in Samaritz. He also happens to be the mayor there as well. Plus, a new magazine from our friend and contributor, Saul Taylor, will be heading to Spain. It's the 16th of July, 2023, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. Good morning from a somewhat overcast, but maybe promising uh, Zurich on a Sunday morning. I'm very happy to say Chandra Kurt is here. Uh, wonderful uh, to see you, Chandra. Great to, to have you back around uh, the microphone. Uh, uh, and also uh, Alexander Andrus, uh, a voice who was, of course, here last week, a new voice uh, to uh, Monocle Radio, Monocle on Sunday uh, with uh, Swiss Info based in Bern. And just to qualify that one more time, Swiss Info being the external uh, news outlet uh, for uh, the state broadcaster. But Chandra, uh, great to see you. Good morning. Good morning, Tyler. Now, you've been out uh, on the road. Uh, have you tasted all the wine that you need to be writing about uh, with the upcoming, well, not just the upcoming wine journal, but all of your consultancies, everything else that you that you do, or is there still a few more bottles that need to be opened? Well, to be exact, I think I have 86 bottles left that next week will not be tasted with the week after. Okay. And, and then I did my summer duty. So tell us, so 86 bottles to go, how do you pace yourself? Do you give yourself 72 hours uh, to get through this? How <laughs> No, Tell no, us how this works. You do it very simply. You know, you, you 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 know by now how many bottles you can taste per day. So I do 20 bottles and not more. So it will take me more or less a week. Uh, so every, you start in the morning at nine o'clock. Then the palate is very very fresh and you you recognize every wine very well. A few hours till like lunchtime. Then uh, you eat something and you go to rest. And then do you also revisit some wines as well? Of course. Because if you're sitting down, you're sort of you're jotting down notes and you think, okay. I, I need to go back and potentially nail that bottle again because it didn't yeah, yeah. quite register or no, you, you, you can't put it on page in the right way. Exactly. So there are some wines, let's say the more simple they are, the less stories they will tell you. But you have some some very complex wine that, that have many layers of aromatics that open maybe only the day after, after two days. And sometimes I love to do this, you know, you open and you look the next day and if at the third day the wine is still standing, you know, it's wonderful. Because other wines, as you maybe know, you drink them and the next day they will be not good anymore. So You've, you've brought us uh, two bottles, which we're going to talk about uh, a little bit later in the program. A very, very nice, uh, two, I think two nice non-filtres, correct? Yes. <coughs> so we'll, but we'll, we'll explore those. I think also we're going to get uh, our producer here in Zurich. Desi's going to have to get us some glasses later for, uh, for, some, for some live uh, sampling uh, as well. Uh, Alexandra, uh, very good to have you. You, t- you talked at the start of the program, of course, and as Emma had it in the, in the news headlines, of course, uh, record heat waves, uh, but also uh, potentially an impact uh, on, on the world of wine as well. Of course, with, there's been so many stories about, of course, wine production moving further north, of course, uh, also further west in Europe, a lot of discussion, of course, and actually big groups buying up uh, certainly you know, considerable property in the UK um, as well, looking at a wine future um, in the UK. But uh, the story that you picked up on this morning is specific to Switzerland. 
No, it's not specific to Switzerland. It's just a general space agency story. But um, one story that Swiss Info recently reported on is that Switzerland is a very water-rich country, but we have to monitor droughts as well. This is something that is a problem everywhere. Um, and even though Switzerland has lots of glaciers and a lot of water flow and gorgeous rivers, it's it's a problem that's going to also affect the small the small country. And Chandra, when you speak to your wine producers here, of course. Well, main question, as, as we've sort of stated many times on this program, anyone who knows the Swiss wine industry, very, very little wine. It's, we're talking single digits uh, yeah. get exported, correct? Uh, correct. So the Swiss correct. drink all of their wa- own wine. Um, but are they at capacity in terms of production or could they still go further up the slopes mm, if they wanted to? Not really, because really the, the land is limited and, uh, and it's planted. So, so I think we are at capacity. But this is good, so we import a lot of other wines from other countries. Yeah, this is this puts a, a smile uh, on, yeah. on Chandra's face. Uh, I want to cut to London now. Uh, Andrew Tuck, our, our editor-in-chief, uh, is there. Andrew, feeling thirsty this morning? It's always nice to hear Chandra back on the air. And uh, yeah, she, she always makes you uh, want to kind of find a, a balcony to... Uh, get a nice glass of wine and settle down with her. Uh, Andrew, I'm not sure if you're maybe a little bit um, either close to the fridge to those bottles or a bit far away from the mic, but uh, we're we're having a little bit of uh, trouble hearing you and also if our technicians in London can maybe boost you somehow, that, that would be great. But uh, no, a booster seat, that would be good. You got you got your booster seat on. Thank you. Uh, Andrew, tell us uh, this morning, uh, if you're looking at uh, yeah, the papers, uh, any, uh, of course, other other outlets, uh, what, uh, what what are you seeing this morning? Well, we don't. We, we kind of think that the summer season doesn't really exist anymore. But actually, none of the papers seem to be following exactly the same stories. There's there's lots of different things going on. As Emma said, a little bit of Wimbledon, an interview with Keir Starmer, warning people that his way out of uh, the economic crisis that the, the UK faces is not going to be by spending big on salaries, but actually by trying to get the economy going again. So I think a bit of a warning bow across his supporters this morning. But yeah, a kind of a, a mixed bag. Ben Wallace, the, the, the Defence Secretary, is saying that he's going to be stepping down uh, from Parliament. And of course, he was uh, in the news in, in recent days for telling uh, Mr Zelensky that he should be a little bit more grateful <laughs> when the UK or when any other NATO member gave, uh, gave Ukraine uh, arms and things forgetting that actually perhaps Ukraine is fighting a, a fight on behalf of um, his country as well as uh, his own. And then also a strange bit of uh, soul searching also going on, whether it's sort of analysis, a bit post-reflective as well. We were at this point last weekend, the UK seemed to be in this extraordinary crisis, a tabloid story generated by, by The Sun, uh, of course, about uh, the, the BBC newsreader and presenter Hugh Edwards. And you know, this is a story which everybody covered. And then it sort of it fell off a cliff, um, probably about by Wednesday or Thursday. And now you seem, if you look at the Times and elsewhere, there's quite a bit of analysis in the paper about you know how, how wrong the media got it, how wrong did sort of public perception um, maybe sort of measure the story. Your sort of thoughts and reflections on that? Well, it's interesting. I think that actually during the week when his, his wife, Vicky Flynn, put out this, um, this statement saying that he was in, in hospital suffering from mental health uh, issues, it really kind of changed the dynamic and it made people kind of step back from the story and think, actually, can we continue to bring out more and more revelations? So certainly the son said that they wouldn't be doing that. And it's interesting that she, you know, she is getting advice from Andy Coulson, who... Uh, had been an advisor to David Cameron, um, fell foul of certain things, ended up in jail actually for a period, but he's back as an advisor now. 
helping people in PR crises. So it wasn't that she just suddenly thought of doing this on her own. She, she is wisely taking some, some support and advice. So the statement came from her, and the next day all of the newspapers were saying, you know, the poor wife, you know, it's, it's, what a tragic situation, how brave of her. And, and all those things are probably correct. But it's just interesting to see how a very well-placed statement quickly, quickly changes the narrative. So now I think there will be a little bit of a holding off until he comes out of hospital. But there was also news this week that apparently the, the, the parents of the original complainant, or actually who didn't complain, the, the, the original parents who said that their child had been involved with Hugh Edwards uh, at age 17, again disputed by many, many saying he was, or they were an adult actually when, they, when this was, was, was first came about. They apparently are being approached now to make a TV programme and they've been offered tens of thousands of pounds for that as well. So it is going to come back as a story, but you're right, we're in the eye of the storm and it has gone quiet. And just, it's, you know, as you said, there's sort of never maybe a quiet summer, but here we have this this climate story uh, as well. And, and of course, this is something which always... You know, fills fills the red tops. Uh, it's a lead story on on the BBC, uh, and uh, of course, you are a sometime resident uh, of of Spain as well. I'm not sure if you've looked at at El País or or the, or the Spanish press this morning. We're going to be going to talk to uh, our, our Saul Taylor in a moment um, about his uh, his new launch, his new magazine uh, Sablos. But I sometimes wonder, Andrew, from just going back to the media lens point of view, is it something which you know tends to sort of dominate uh, the Northern European media, uh, maybe a little bit more than, of course, if you're sitting living in it um in in andalusia or somewhere else well my, my wonderful spanish teacher has moved back to spain two weeks ago so we we tried doing an, an online class this week which was pretty good but she is in cadiz and she said that actually last week even before this 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 heat wave this week that the, t- the temperatures were dropping to 35 degrees at night and during the day had been consistently above 40 degrees. And she said that, you know, that actually socially there, it's happened so, so regularly now in Cadiz, that they are beginning to uh, change how, how they live, you know, that people um, you know, in places like Cordoba and in Valencia all, all are beginning to re-engineer their days a little bit so that they, their life is, is behind shutters dur- during the day. And even in Mallorca, you notice this, that, you know, while the tourists are out wandering the streets, if you go to those villages, they know how to kind of protect themselves. Every shutter is shut. They, they make sure the house is, is, is in semi-darkness until evening. So it, it's interesting. I, I think people are, are concerned, worried about their, their elderly parents, for example, but they do have some experience in how to deal with this. Um, Andrew, just uh, in, in the interest of time, stay there uh, as well. But uh, you were talking about villages and maybe shutters being shut. Uh, we want to head to a village right now where the shutters are, are wide open. Uh, the curtains uh, are completely uh, pulled back uh, as well, because I just want to bring on a special guest. He's in between performances already at uh, 10.15 on a Sunday morning. I sort of find it a little bit hard to believe. But nevertheless, I want to bring on uh, Christian Jotjeni. Uh, he's the mayor of Samritz. He's also the founder uh, of the uh, Samritz Festival du Jazz. And he joins us, of course, uh, from uh, from Samaritz at uh, 1800 meters or, or whatever it is up there. Uh, good morning, Christian. Good morning, Tyler. Uh, d- tell, tell us, Christian, good morning. Uh, just, uh, the, the, you know, we were sort of in a bit of jazz festival season. We've come off the back of, of Montreux. Uh, now, of course, we've got the, the jazz festival on in Samaritz. If I'm listening to this, I happen to be in Wellington, New Zealand. I could be sitting in Kyoto. I could be sitting as near in, 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 in London, potentially. Uh, why would I want to come up to Samaritz? Who is performing uh, over these coming weeks? Well, first of all, I think we are 
the smallest jazz festival in Europe. Um, we, we are, as, as you mentioned, 1,856 meters over the sea, and it's a kind of a boutique festival. The maximum of, of, of the audience is about 200 people. So, and the worst place, the worst seat you can sit, it's six meters from the stage. And um, uh, if you can join Herbie Hancock or, or Al Jarreau, Chikoria, well, they, not anymore, but if you can join big names like that in a such nice, cozy atmosphere like in the famous Dracula Club, I think there's a good reason why to come. Christian, Samaritz is, of course, uh, one of these uh, alpine resorts, uh, which is continuing to reinvent itself. And I was just up earlier in the week. It's it's amazing to see how busy it is. Uh, I was commenting, it felt like there were more cranes um, over at least uh, what, one part of the village than there probably are in Abu Dhabi at the moment. There's certainly a lot of renovation. There's a lot of construction going. So fantastic uh, news for the contract uh, industry. How important is it uh, that you continue to push hard to have a dynamic summer season, especially off the back of where we're talking about climate change? And I think what does this mean for a resort at 1,856 meters above sea level? Well, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't like to say it, but St. Moritz or kind resorts on that on that sea level, um, we are uh, kind of winner. Sorry for say that of the of the of the climate stuff. You know, it's 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 still it's now. I mean, first of all, St. Moritz always in, in, in 150 years ago it was a summer resort. People came here because it was cold in summer. And then um, in the late 1850, um, some, British, some British guys were coming and founded actually ski tourism, so winter tourism. But now I really have to say, when I heard, when I heard the news uh, all about these this crazy temperatures all over Europe and all over the world, of course, it makes it makes sense. It's it's a it's it's a good reason to come to come to that to to that resort in summer because it's never more than 24 uh, centigrade. So that's that's actually that's that's one of the most points. So I think also in the winter, St. Moritz will be a kind of winner because we still have we still have um, a quiet, uh, a, a, We are in a good sea level that we still have snow, of course, and but we have also other possibilities it, I, I don't know a place uh in the world of a kind of winter resource where it can do such such many things um not only skiing or snowboarding whatever so that's that's a good reason to come in summer also in winter Christian, just quickly before we go, tell me, uh, you are, of course, uh, you know, a, a man of the song sheet. Uh, I've heard you belt out a tune uh, or, or two uh, o- over time uh, as well. So what's, what's been the highlight uh, so far? What are you looking forward to before things uh, wrap up? Tonight, uh, it's Kenny Garrett, the famous saxophone player from Miles Davis, playing uh, at the Dracula Club. Um, but we also did, um, yeah, well, probably one of the last, concerts of the famous Manhattan Transfer. They performed um, last, last Sunday here. That was amazing. Um, and also uh, we have, we have Didi Bridgewater coming with a, with a youth orchestra from New York. So it's quite, um, uh, it's quite a huge, uh, <laughs> a very huge and big program. We have 62 concerts, a lot of international guests. So um, I'm looking forward actually to every concert. And in, in, in 40 minutes, in 40 minutes, we start the concert 
with the British um, piano player uh, Simon Mulligan in the in Bregalia in a very nice church. He played Gershwin and, and Bernstein. So it's uh, it's a lot to to listen to. Very good. Uh, Christian Jogeni, uh, mayor of Samritz, uh, also uh, the founder of the Festival du Jazz uh, there as well. I'll let you get off to the uh, to the Mulligan uh, concert uh, right now. It's just gone 10.20 uh, here in Zurich, which means, of course, uh, it's time for a bit of Chandra. Um, and, of course, listeners who've been following this program since we went on air know that uh, this is probably one of the most loved uh, parts of the program, where, of course... Uh, our, our guests, uh, of course, give Chandra a brief in terms of what they might be looking for for some type of wine. Could be wine over the next few minutes, next few hours, next few days. Uh, Emma, I'm not sure there's, there's not winners in this game, but I, I, I always feel that that uh, that somehow um, you might enjoy this the most. And we should say that you know, we wanted to have Chandra on the show last week. Emma, of course, was here. We did a special edition of the program. Uh, Emma was standing right where you are now, Chandra, reading the news. It was great. We had a full house. Today, we just have one guest and a, and a dog um, in the room listening. Um, but but never, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, Emma, um, of course, you missed Chandra last week. Uh, but it, had you been side by side, what would you have asked? Well, I'm, I might bring you up to date. And I think that's a very lucky dog, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Chandra. It's lovely Hi, to hear Emma. you. Um, so it's really simple. It's Wimbledon. I have a kilo of strawberries. What do I drink with them? You Please. have what? A kilo of strawberries. What do I drink with them? A kilo of strawberries, the fruit. Mm. The fruit. Yeah, okay. the fruit, okay. yeah. Okay. okay, good. So really simple. Th- that's it. So, but um, and nothing beyond that, you know, <laughs> you, feel, you feeling bubbly, any, anything else? Are you going to be in a comfortable chair? Are, how many people are going to be watching Wimbledon at well, chairs? I, I, think, I, I think we sort of have to broaden the brief a little bit, or refine the brief, I should say. Oh, yes. Well, so after about a kilo of strawberries and something from Chandra, I will be... Uh, horizontal um and i think it will just be husband and son today we're keeping it super super actually no i think they're going out so it may be a solo effort on my part today chandra so don't don't get me into too much trouble because when they come back from their expedition this afternoon it will just be me good 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 let's so make don't sure get me in too much of do, don't get me in too much that trouble they recognize you no, let's do well that i recognize them frankly as yeah well. i was gonna say uh so, and Andrew, uh, last time I saw you, uh, I left you in Stad uh, and uh, with with our, our creative director, creative director Richard Spencer Powell. Um, you head down the mountains, but I th- we did we did a good job on, on some on some Swiss wines uh, anyway, and and some French bottles uh, as well. But um, maybe since then, I'm not sure you've been having a bit of a pause. Uh, so do you do you want a bit of a a reset potentially? I, I, I did have a few days pause, but I, I quickly rebooted, don't worry. And, uh, and just for Chandra's profession, well, you know, just to say Chandra, we met somebody who was 24 years old, a sommelier, who could walk their way around that wine list with, with so impressively and suggest wines to people that would maybe change their, their outlook and just add one more, uh, one more vintage or one more bottle to their, to their shopping list. So the jo- the, let's just say the work you do is very important to the world, Chandra, and we recognise that. Now Thank it's, you so it's, much. It's, <laughs> She's blushing. <laughs> now tell me, uh, when it is hot, and it's not that hot today in London, but when it is hot, we all wonder about how we, we have a wine that is, is cold, and we know the obvious choices. But perhaps when you give me your pick today, you can pick a red that actually you wouldn't mind putting in the fridge. Is that a, is that a sin? Is there, is there a, we- a red that you think actually can have a moment in the fridge before it's drunk? And yeah. perhaps as a, as a PS to that, you can, or a footnote to that, you can tell us, does Chandra ever put an ice cube in a glass of wine? 
There is no sin in wine. Just you know that, and and I will have a good answer for you, <laughs> Andrew. You 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 bring up the the, the lovely Jacopo, uh, who was the the sommelier that that we met, and it, it is it is remarkable because it's you know aside from the bottles consumed, it, you know he and his colleagues they also s- seem to spawn a thousand stories, didn't they? Yeah, everybody had to tell. So he was he was great, Chandra, because we we said to him, you know, how come a guy at twenty four would knows so many wines or a woman knows so many wines how, how do you get this kind of training and he said well i don't come from a family of of drinkers at all but you know not heavy drinkers but there was always wine around so since i was five i've been having a taste of wine and uh lets you be at 24 somebody who can who can know so much they all had such great stories and i think the other amazing thing that me, struck me entirely was that this this extraordinary movement of highly skilled mostly Italian service staff who come back and forth across the Alps, depending on the season, going to the best hotels, delivering high, high quality service. It's, a, it's an amazing kind of secretive movement of people around the Swiss Alps. And what's, what's amazing, Chandra, as well, when you have this, and we were talking about sort of the power of social capital as well, because you, know, you have a, a battalion of Italians, and maybe there was sort of the, odd, the odd Portuguese in the group as well, but it's just really a well-oiled machine. I mean, when you're in a grand hotel and you sort of think actually, you know, Swiss Hospitality Incorporated probably wouldn't function uh, without these, these armies and these, these teams who function incredibly well, running their lobbies, running their bars, shaking cocktails. I think it's very important. And, and I like also that they are from other countries and we, we go to these places exactly to have this experience. And, you know, to get back to you, Andrew, about the stories, that one of, of, of the top that keeps me with the wine is that behind many wines, there are so beautiful stories. You wouldn't believe them or they are coincidences, but you can always tell a story. And, uh, and this, is, this is just an endless journey, and, and I love this very much. And, and also, I mean, I think we know as well, in, in a business which seems to be doing quite well, thinking about the hotel business where room rates are off the charts right now. I mean, Andrew, it's, it's incredible also still how easy it is to be upsold. You tell you know, someone a little bit you know, of a story about you know, the family behind the vineyard uh, who happened to be in Graubünden, and the next thing you know, you, you've sort of graduated you know, a couple of hun- extra hundred francs for that bottle as well. No, they, they're, they're, they're good salespeople. And just one aside, somebody wrote to me this week to tell me about somebody who works in one of these grand hotels as a, a head bar person and uh, was saying that actually uh, it turns out they have a, a house. They're British originally. They have a, a house in England where they come for a couple of months a year, but their wife is from Italy. Then they have a house in Italy and they also have a, a little place up in, in Switzerland as well that actually if you're the head barman in one of these grand establishments, you can do rather well from the trade. I can imagine. Um, Andrew, just stick around for one second. Um, Alexander, maybe just, uh, you, you get the gig now. Uh, it's, they say the sun is going to come out this afternoon. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping it, it does so uh, in, in Zurich. Uh, what kind of wine tip would you like from, from Chandra? Well, it's my lucky dog that's in the audience, and we will be escaping <coughs> the heat and going to the mountains, and sometime next weekend watching the sunrise. What would you take with you to watch with the sunrise? Very good. Got it. Yep. Chandra, I just want to, before we, we go, and I mean, Andrew, you know, sometimes, you know, we, we touch on this topic when you're, you're in, in the trade, uh, no matter w- what your business is. And, and of course, you know, I think about our, our core business, of course, is, is <coughs> magazines. It, sometimes you really have to have a, find a moment to, to go and enjoy magazines because oftentimes you're, you're looking at titles uh, for perhaps. Per, for professional reasons, uh, and uh, and you know, and they might be it might be competitive. You're there just to research. You're not sort of kicking back and then sort of loving and 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 learning from great print. And I'm wondering if that's the same for you. Sometimes you talk about these 86 bottles. Is there 
do you still find a joy in going into just a good wine shop as opposed to having boxes sent to your office? Yeah, of course. This is because this, it's full of surprises. You know, if, if you look at the bottle and you don't know anything, you just see bottles. They look all the same or similar. Some have nicer labels, some not. But from the moment you go a little bit behind it, the beautiful stories can pop out. So I always try to find these fantastic stories. I just recently, in essence, I went to the, I went to the Ergon House to see, to see the, the food shop. And next to it, there was a wine shop. I didn't know it. It's called Wine Tunnel. So I entered this wine tunnel. And uh, it was the head. Of, they, had, they, they had some Greek wine, but they had from something from California, Kongsgard, which I like a lot. But then there was a box with with a called the, the what is it called? The and, and one wine had the, the traveler, and one wine had had the label with Zurich Airport on it. And I followed it up, and it, it's, it's a beautiful story that you can read now in our latest issue of the magazine. So you always find stories when you go and look. Yeah, I mean, Andrew, it's like the Zurich Airport story sounds like someone just sort of left the duty-free label on it, doesn't it? <laughs> Good old Chandra, you, you're always finding these amazing stories. And I think that, that's the other thing that I know ages ago we did a story in Monaco when we did a story up in, uh, in Lebanon about the, the vineyards there. And this amazing winemaker just talked about the, the soil under your, under your fingernails. And when you come from a place and when you see that represented as wine, again, the sense of terroir and, and how it becomes a, a narrative and, and something you, you, you just have to drink because it's, it, it's, it's life-affirming. It's about place. It's about how we live our lives. Andrew, just uh, on, on Lebanon, a favorite place. Probably not many of us are going to get there this summer. Um, Chandra, just tell us uh, quickly, how is uh, wine production doing out of, out of Lebanon? Any good bottles uh, still, still arriving uh, at, at pace? Well, I know more the wines from Israel, but from Lebanon, I just know Kefraya, and I think this is always good. And um, what is this other famous? Uh, Chateau Mizar. Chateau Mizar. So I think you, what is nice about Mizar, you can drink old vintages, and they're fantastic. Yeah, and maybe that's going to be a bit of a recommendation for, for Andrew, a red that you can happily drink during summertime. It's uh, just gone the bottom of the hour, 10.30 uh, here in 9.30 in London. Emma Nelson's back there with the news headlines. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Southern Europe is expected to be gripped by a heat wave for the next week. The temperatures show no signs of dropping, with 48 Celsius predicted in the likes of Sardinia. Meanwhile, parts of the US are also expected to see record temperatures later, with warnings of dangerous heat levels into next week. The UK has become the first European country to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. The trade pact known as the CPTPP is a trade agreement among 11 nations in Asia and the Pacific, including Japan and Australia. According to today's Tagus Anzeiger newspaper, the Swiss speak less English than most in Europe. An international ranking of English proficiency shows that Switzerland is only 23rd in Europe, with young people and women uh, less proficient than men. And researchers have found that consuming grapes every day could carry even more health benefits than previously known. Scientists claim that when adults eat the equivalent of three servings of grapes daily for two weeks, the diversity of bacteria protects the body's immune system. Previous research has shown that grape consumption supports heart health and it improves your memory. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. We have to go to our chief uh, wine and medical correspondent, Chandra Kurt, on that. Ch- Chandra, uh, does... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you just <laughs> she was she was, she, Emma, she was already sort of deep in wine research here anyway. But they, Emma, re, re, just read that last news line. Bring bring Chandra back up right. to speed because we we want her expert opinion on this. Fine. So uh, hello, Chandra. So it, uh, consuming grapes carries even more health benefits than previously known. Apparently, if you eat the equivalent of three servings of grapes daily for two weeks, I'm not quite sure what a serving of grapes is. It's usually sort of set at 75 centiliters. Uh, the diversity of bacteria protects your immune system but previous research has shown that grape consumption supports your heart and improves your memory but uh, before fermentation or after ah now that i hadn't i'm not a scientist so i wouldn't know but i would i'd probably be asked what your what your view on that one was i go for the fermented fermented version and i think i can never fly again british airways because um <laughs> i will get a fine <laughs> But uh, but I think, you know, to eat fruit is in general good. And if you eat so much fruit, you, I suppose you don't eat anything else. And yeah, maybe. But it, it could I, be. Listen, I, I was just going to say true or false. I, I, I think I, I'm just going with true. I think it's I, I, we're, you're fine with it, aren't you, Emma? I'm going to take that chance. Um, actually, Chandra, I wouldn't you mind are. asking you, do you actually eat many grapes or do you just drink them? I mainly drink them. Right. OK. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, here's a question, though. Uh, are you seeing more vineyards actually moving into grape juice production as well because i have noticed the odd uh liquor store that you go into uh you definitely see more fancy bottles which is just of course i'm sure very nice grape juice uh but with a nice label on it uh at quite an extortionate price and it's not of course it's not alcoholic so you can get whack it on the table and um of course they're driving a nice margin from it more of that happening yeah more and more because you have this uh, like low alcohol or no alcohol movement and and you will find now in those in the coming years more and more products so far you know, the quality is not there, or you cannot compare it to a real wine because it tastes really different. You miss this this mid palate where the alcohol explodes all the aromas, so it's a little bit empty. But um, but there will be more products like this. But you're probably not going to be devoting pages to the wine cellar to this. We had we did a story now this time because it, it is it is there. You know, these bottles suddenly stand next to the other bottles. They look the same, but you if you don't know it, you you have tastes that really are, are not the same at all. Mm. So you, it is a topic. Um, just, um, I want to go back to the other story which which you had, which is, it is the lead story in the Tagesanzeiger, uh, of course, one of the, the German language newspapers of record here in Switzerland out of Zurich. And I want, Alexander, I wanted to bring you in on this because, of course, you know, you're working with Swiss Info. You're working across a variety of languages. Of course, English is going to be one of your lead languages as well. Emma, you were here last last week. Uh, mm. I'm, I'm not. You commented actually that you know, most places you go into, you actually you found that actually, I mean, English is not a problem. Um, I, I believe uh, you commented on that, or maybe it could have been after a few glasses of wine. Um, <laughs> but but nevertheless, uh, I'm wondering. Of course, this this is a city you've come back and forth to you know a, num- a number of times. But it's quite amazing when they talk about it, ranking number 23 in in Europe. When you think about a city which is and also a country as well which is so international with so many expats, um, but that also that English proficiency is as, as low as that. So Emma, first to you, surprised or, and, 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 and a zone of concern potentially? Yes, super surprised because as you say last week, uh, clear as a bell, sober, I did notice <laughs> that uh, when you go everywhere in the center of town at least, um, everybody speaks perfect English. I mean, not just proficient English, but English that is, you know, entirely conversant. You work in it, you live in it. It is outstanding. Um, I think what, what surprised me about this article in the Targa's Anzeiger is that, that that it highlights Zurich as being a particular problem. Now, what's been established in the past, I think, is that um, what's forty five percent of the population in Germany and Switzerland speak 
speak English, so that's almost half. And a lot of those speakers are in the German sections. <laughs> Quite, I don't know what we what we think about this, but the French and Italian sections of Switzerland apparently don't have um, a stronger proficiency in English. It's the it's the German side. So I'm really I'm really really surprised by that article actually. Alexander, so from the position of, of course, a broadcaster, is is this a topic? Because on one side, you have four official languages. You could argue English is almost like the fifth official language uh, of, of the country. Is this a, also a political topic as well? Because, you know, oftentimes people coming moving into Switzerland um, as well, they may not have any of the four official languages of the country, but they might have English. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is this a discussion in Bern as to how much this moves up the ranks? Because I can remember also talking to some of the newspapers. We've seen the NZZ, the Neue Zürcher Zeitung, uh, here in Switzerland, they de- they have an English language newsletter as well. Now that's also to, of course, boost their global awareness. It's not just to uh, make people feel better who live in Switzerland, but there's a part of that. But how much of a discussion is that in Bern? Do you think? It's really interesting, actually, because I'm wondering who they they tallied for this. Because I've also never had a problem with English, um, and I I will say that there is now 800,000 Swiss abroad. Um, and I'm wondering if they're taken into the calculation as well, um, who the statistics are landing on. There was recently a SF article about uh, these five group of five musicians who came together to create a Swiss national song, and they had the four national net languages plus Spanish. And it was really interesting in that article, the French contributor, the French musician, was the only one that couldn't speak the other languages. So I'm kind of seeing that trend that that is touched upon by Emma. Yeah, I, so I think maybe Emma, we're, we're swinging our lens. Uh, you know, this is this is not any sort of indictment, but it's just it's just a fact. Yes. <laughs> it's in it. And, and and it is something that you you do notice in cabs in Geneva or and and interactions in in Lausanne or wherever you happen to be in uh, in Romandie in, in Switzerland. There is that also that strange experience that I had that there was an element of surprise. I, I have a, a little bit of German in my head, not a, not a tremendous amount. And when people saw me make an effort to speak German, they were like, oh, my goodness, you're an English person who speaks German. And I think that's one of, dare I say it, that is something that the United Kingdom needs to pull its socks up in terms of teaching young people that the, the joys of speaking a foreign language can open doors and get you loads and loads of, you know, you can have a nice time. And you can eat, what was it, the three principles that I adhere to. If you can speak a foreign language, you all you need to do is be able to eat uh, find somewhere to sleep and find and get yourself from A to B, and that can just open doors. It, indeed, indeed, it can. I, I, I like those life, life lessons from from Emma Nelson. Uh, we're going to uh, head to Bangkok uh, right now. It's uh, just uh, coming up to just gone uh, ten thirty eight. It's uh, it's uh, thir- uh, fifteen thirty eight uh, in in Bangkok, and we're joining our. Uh, Bureau Chief uh, and, and Correspondent there, uh, James Chambers, because James, uh, it's been, of course, uh, quite a turbulent week. It's been a tur- turbulent month, in, indeed, for, for Thai politics uh, of late. And uh, we, we saw, of course, last week, uh, we were going to see uh, the upper house of government, uh, to, hopefully, uh, they, they were there to uh, to appoint or to elect a, a, a prime minister. Um, and, and this did not happen, uh, but maybe bring us up to speed uh, on, on that story. And good afternoon, by the way, James. Morning, Tyler. Yes, that's right. On, on Thursday was the, the first chance the parliament had to elect the young uh, move forward leader, Peter Lemgeronrat, uh, prime minister. Uh, he needed to win uh, more votes than he had in his coalition. He needed to convince over 60 of these kind of conservative senators who'd been appointed by the military to, uh, to endorse him as well. Um, and he didn't do that. Now, as you know, Tyler, from you know your trips over here and our dinners and our kind of straw polls, most Thai people were expecting him to fail, at least at this first hurdle. Um, so 
what was key about Thursday's vote was to see how many senators he could get on side. They were very confident leading up to the poll, saying we've got the numbers. But at the end of the day, they only con convinced 13 to join them. So as we look ahead to the next vote, which is going to happen on Wednesday, um, I guess there's not a lot of confidence that he can get uh, another 50 uh, to switch sides. And so what happens at, the, at, this, at that point? Because uh, if you certainly look at uh, the, the Bangkok uh, Post uh, this morning, uh, you know, lead story um, right now, campaign of abuse, senators hit back and supporters of, of, um, of, of Kunpita's party move forward uh, who have launched a witch hunt on, on social media against them. Um, and of course, you, know, you seem to have this, this quite this this division right now um of course move forward party say this is this is this is what the people have voted um and and i guess they talk in terms of a witch hunt uh that they're of course going after probably you know quite a few stick in the mud uh senators uh as well who are only going to go one direction and of course there are some policies that move forward have which of course certainly rub with rub against i would say certainly um you know uh, more than one constituency of perhaps sort of more old guard, old school uh, ties and certainly ex-Thai military people as well. Yeah, it, it was very um, clear from the debate on Thursday what the key issue was. That you know, Parliament was getting together to, they were meant to decide on Kun Peter's you know, suitability for to be Prime Minister. But the, almost the whole day was taken up on their policy uh, to reform the Les Majestés laws, Section 112 of the Criminal Code. So rather than being you know, a kind of debate on, on whether he is qualified or not, it was all about whether they you know, could get behind their their plan to try and reform this controversial law. And obviously all the senators said they wouldn't support any party that suggested that. So uh, unless Move Forward changes their tone on that um, uh, Les, Les Majestés law, then it's unlikely anything's going to change. Uh, and the problem for, for Move Forward and for, for Kuhn Peter is that, you know, that's one of their core policies and they can't back down now, otherwise their supporters would ditch them. So it, it does feel like, you know, the next vote or maybe maybe the third one as well, because there could be two this week. They're, but they're, they're all just going to be a repeat of what happened on Thursday. Um, you know, uh, move forward, they're going to stick to their guns. And I imagine uh, the senators will do the same. So uh, you know, the key thing will be, well, what happens next? So, James, uh, of course, we've got you on the line. Uh, you're in Bangkok. What does happen next? Because, as you said, it, it, you know, it, it was interesting just listening to, uh, of course, uh, various uh, Thai contacts, journalists, uh, business people, uh, people, and, and, and you know, everyone having a bit of skin in, the, in this game in terms of what happens. And everyone was right. They, this was not going to happen, uh, you know, as much as the will of the people might have been behind move forward. This this hurdle uh, was going to be just that um, that uh, that Kunpita was not going to be able to to, to get over it. So, um, if if you're sort of listening to uh, other dinner dinner party conversations right now, where where does it go later this week and, and beyond? Well, there was uh, the Thai constitution doesn't actually put a limit on the amount of times someone can be nominated for PM. So technically, uh, they could put Kunpita forward. Uh, you know, uh, until the cows come home and they could just keep voting. Um, and technically, these senators who have an all-important part in this vote, their, their role uh, lapses next year in May 2024. And so when people talk about the election being rigged, they talk about these senators and this kind of quirky role they have in electing the PM. So, you know, one option is for Move Forward to be very stubborn and just keep on 
uh, putting Peter forward <laughs> until until May next year. But obviously, that's never going to happen. The parties in his coalition won't let that happen. So it's there seems to be the consensus that after you know three strikes, it is three strikes and you're out. Um, and the question is, who comes next? Uh, and uh, move forward. And Peter, even this weekend, has said, well. We're going to give it a go this week, but uh, you know, if we hit a brick wall, then we will shift our support to Pertai, which is the other major opposition party, which is one of the the, the big party in their coalition. Um, so they were saying they'll they'll give uh, Pertai uh, a chance to put forward one of their candidates, and then the question is, would senators support Pertai if they're part, still part of a coalition with Move Forward? Um, and so that's the that's the big doubt because even you know if Move Forward still hasn't got the pre- prime minister but they're still part of the coalition, uh, they could still be pushing for their you know for their policies. So we might be looking at the case where the coalition has to break up, Pertai has to go go into the opposition uh, for another four years, and then we see who can form a workable coalition. Um, and the big question for for the Pertai party is that if they do that, uh, and if they do go into government, you know how much. Would the move forward supporters? How much would the Thai young people? How much? How much would these kind of this big pro democracy wave? How much would those people, uh, you know, blame them again, basically for uh, for not uh, electing their man? And James, just before we go, uh, how nervous uh, would you say? Off the back of us this week, even though it's not much of a surprise, um, you know, is is you know, t- t- Thailand Incorporated, uh, and, and not just maybe doesn't sort of you know affect aspects of, of the tourism industry so much. But you know, if I'm in exports, um, if if I'm sitting in a sector which needs government, it needs policy, it needs proper representation, whatever it may be, and you know, without uh, of course a, a new government in place, how stifling is that? You know, business is worried. As it's you know, it's it's the phrase that's always echoed around the world. Business just likes uh, certainty and hates uncertainty. So at the moment, Thai politics is looking very uncertain, and there are some key you know legislation, key key business that needs to be done, including um, the next budget. So at the moment, you know, the, the business communities just want just want a result, and and they can deal with whoever is in power. They don't they're pretty uh, agnostic most of the time, um, so they want to see. You know somebody elected i think when it comes to you know thailand it's always tourism which is the big thing uh and the general consensus is that that you know people are still going to come flocking to thailand unless there are some huge protests like there have been in the past where they start you know blocking blocking the airports we're we're nowhere near that uh this is you know part of the political process um i think we're going to see weeks if not months of this kind of cycle of 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 um of votes in the parliament and it's it's you know i've seen some of the news coverage from places like the straits times and the guardian talking about protests in bangkok there haven't been any protests yet uh, there have been supporters out in the streets but a hundred people sat in a square waving orange flags at least in my book doesn't doesn't uh, amount to a protest yet so i think you know thailand is still very very stable it's it's kind of used to this political uh, instability but we'll have to wait and see i think the longer this goes on um the more the business community and the, and the tourism op- operators are going to get nervous 
James Chambers, our man in Bangkok. Thanks very much. Uh, I think you're going to have a rather busy uh, summer ahead because, as you said, uh, there's probably no quick resolution uh, to this story. It's uh, just gone at 10.47 now uh, here in Zurich. It's also at 10.47 in Spain where we're heading now uh, to talk to a gentleman uh, who I've known for uh, a very, very long time, uh, someone who... Uh, yeah, started his journalistic career, you could say, uh, on the pages of Wallpaper Magazine, uh, worked with our sister company, Wink Creative, uh, was also uh, rose up the ranks uh, at Monocle as well, still a, an occasional uh, contributor to some of the things we uh, get up to. And one of the great things uh, that, of course, uh, people who collaborate with us do sometimes is they also launch their own uh, magazines uh, as well. And I've got um, a rather sad deck, and it has nothing to do with the, print, uh, the printer here, uh, but it's, uh, we couldn't get a copy of this new title uh, to us uh, in time for this broadcast. But I'm very happy to say that uh, Saul Taylor is on the line. He is the editor, the founder of Sablos. Um, so Saul, I've got these, yeah, this, this stack of, of, of double-sided sort of printed, um, yeah, A4 pages landscape. Um, it sort of does Sablos justice. Uh, but uh, maybe uh, tell us a little bit uh, uh, about it. And uh, buenos dias, by the way. Buenos dias. Uh, it's nice to speak to you, Tyler. It's been a while. It has um, been a while. It's sad that you have a stack of A4 PDF uh, pieces because actually what we've done is really quite special. Um, the story, as you mentioned, did start quite a while ago when I started working for you at Wallpaper. And then moved to Wink, went to, we started uh, Monocle. And then I moved to Rio. I was helping out the mayor of Rio uh, there. And the whole time, I never found a travel, certainly in the, in, in the mainstream travel media, never found a travel title that really spoke to me. And the reason for that is if you, if you look at the travel, uh, the travel media sector, it's lovely, nice pictures of pretty, pretty pictures of beaches, it's uh, street corners, it's nice bits of food, but there's very rarely any people in that. And I always thought that I had uh, the idea to, to launch a magazine and also an app and a website that concentrated on the locals, because within the sort of like the, 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 the travel media landscape, no one ever concentrated on the locals. So that's what we've done. We, we've launched a magazine that's about people and their places. So, so just um, Sablos uh, as 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 the title uh, for it, and and I think you know we, we've always also talked about the importance of a sense of place, uh, you know, and and one of the things that probably drives you crazy as much as as me is it's always amazing when you look at so many websites, you look at so many brands which talk about purpose and cause and all of the, um, of course, the, the hot terms of the day. And then you sort of get to the about us page, and it talks more about purpose and cause, and it never says where the brand is from. It rarely exactly. talks about even who's behind it. Um, but here you are, there's this, you've got Sablos on, 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 on of course, the front cover. Um, you're based in, in Spain. So how much of this is a reflection or is it through an Iberian lens versus uh, it's, it's also completely global because you also do cast your eye you know, far and wide as well in terms of your contributors um, and, and certainly uh, the, the, yeah, the subjects you're talking to. Yeah, we like to, I mean, we like to think of ourselves very much as a product of Barcelona. The design team, it's all, everything is done here. So it's printed here. The design team is here. We also had uh, a font crafted for us, especially by a, a local um, a local designer here. So yeah, for me, it's very much a product of, of, of Barcelona. But 
Having said that, it's 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 a global it's a global title. You can find this all around the world. So in the in right across Europe, in the uh, US, in Asia. So it is, of course, being a travel title. It's, it's an international. You know, we, we're we're thinking international, but we'd like to think of ourselves as a sort of a cheery, you know, Iberian product. Um, well, on the topic of uh, of cheery and um, and all things Iberian as well, I want to bring in uh, your former boss uh, into this discussion as well. Uh, Andrew Tuck is back on on the line. Um, Andrew, you worked with Sol for uh, for, for quite a stint. Uh, you you shared a very large uh, desk. I mean, not just one desk, but it was it was a collection of desks as well. Um, for people who aren't familiar with Sol Taylor, do you, do you have any sort of fa- favorite stories? And and is he qualified to do a magazine like this, Andrew? I think he's highly qualified, although I don't know I ever felt that I was his boss. I think that was a bit of a <laughs> good thing about Saul and that generation of writers who came in and editors who came at the beginning of Monocle is that they were a reflection of a change of pace for magazine publishing, especially at Monocle, that we, we wanted some liveness on page. We wanted people who wanted to get out in the world. We didn't want people who wanted to do interviews by phone and sit at their desks. And wow did we hire well it was it was uh it was like holding on to an eel holding on to a young soul and and off off he went first uh going to live in barcelona and then when we were on a trip uh to uh to uh south uh to uh brazil rather he managed to wangle this job with with the mayor eduardo Paes. so uh, an amazing collaborator and i think that you know that when we look today at staff and hiring we're always looking for those echoes today, even now. So, uh, yes, I think well-skilled. And Ansel, I have a real copy because I went into the newsstand in Parma the other day and there was right at the front door a very big pile of Sablos. Oh, so, fantastic. well done. I think well, you, not too you big a pile, though. Well, no, quite a reasonably impressive pile because I think when you get that first issue out, you don't want one lone copy like stuck between a continent or risk being covered up by some other rival magazine. Because look, we, we know we've done that in the early days. We've made sure that our magazine is front or forward in every newsstand we've gone into. So well done. It was it was impressive to see it out there. And nice to see, again, you know, a world of collaborators that have come through for our lives as well, kind of uh, landing up on page with you too. So Thank you, know, you. You, know, you know what Andrew is saying, basically, he said, yeah, he went in, there was a big stack of magazines, but then if he went, went in as the next customer, Sablos was probably hiding uh, behind uh, yeah, a wall of convex and monocles. But anyway, that's what happens in the world of newsstands, so, as, as you know. Uh, t- tell, us, tell us quickly, uh, and maybe Andrew, just your, your thoughts on this as well. It, you know, it, it would sort of be the obvious question if I was an, an investor uh, putting money behind this, uh, you know, what, why do a print magazine um, out of, yeah, you know, out of, you could sort of say is, is a niche market um, as well, as opposed to doing an app, Saul. Yeah, I think, you know, it's like the, the, of all the, of all the sectors, the travel, the travel industry is, is, is relatively booming. And I think there is room, there is definitely room within the sort of like the, 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 the as I said, the sort of like the, the mainstream sector. For something that does something a little bit different because the, i think the travel the travel media is tends to be quite similar so we're doing something different but also something that the partners actually quite like and the advertisers quite like is this 360 degree approach so the, there is an app coming they quite like the idea of that so there is a digital component to this but you know me i'm a, I'm a magazine i'm a magazine man and i was just desperate to get my own magazine out there. So I think, and, that, and that's a testament to you and to Andrew as well. 
Thank you. And, so and Andrew, if you had to he had to score it on a on a launch issue, we know launch issues are are, are never easy. Um, you know, we always have to add a game show element to this. Of course, we've we've got we've got Chandra here as well with her recommendations. Uh, what, what score are you giving it for a launch? Well, if I gave it 10 out of 10, there'd be nowhere to go. So let's give it 9 out of 10. Let me just say a few things. I think it's sexy. I think it, it, it's cheeky. I think it has character. It's, it, it's, it's witty in its use of illustration. And I think that the, the thing that, that Saul talks about there, which, which I find again and again and again, is there is so much travel coverage. There's so much acreage of press trips written up as passing off as reports but what you need is somebody who dissects that and i think this 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 feeling that it is a bit iberian and that this slicing and dicing from there makes it very palatable so uh, listen as you said it's on newsstand around the world next copy is out next edition is out when i guess for autumn september yes it'll be on newsstand mid-september very good. I, so I'm giving it. I'm giving it a, 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 an, an eight point five. There's always room for improvement. Um, and I'm, and I'm giving, but I'm giving you. I'm giving you. A, I'm giving you a nine out of ten. Commercially great lineup of advertisers out out front uh, as well. I think this is so often forgotten uh, when people you know bring out a new launch. They only worry about the advertisers. But I think you've done an outstanding job. Uh, Saul Taylor, editor of Sablus Magazine, uh, joining us uh, from Barcelona. Uh, this morning, the magazine is on newsstands across Europe. Andrew, stay on the line. Chandra is here. Uh, she's got her recommendations. Andrew, we'll start with you. You were looking for something red, I believe, but would work in this weather. Yeah, I want your, 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 uh, your cooling advice. Uh, is there a red that can, that can be put in the fridge and not offend the purists and be good fun? And would you ever put an ice cube in, yes. in a white? So let's start with the second question. Of course, I put ice in the wine, you know, especially in summer when it's hot. You can put in the rosé some, some, some ice, but I love to put it in sparkling wines in there, especially also sparkling wine for ice. It's just very dangerous because you drink very fast and you're very fast, not a customer for British Airways. So for the red wine in the fridge, um, you know, a wine that always goes well is the Beaujolais. So grape, grape, Beaujolais, put it in the fridge and, uh, and when it's especially warm outside, don't pour too much in the glass because it will warm up. Excellent. Alexandra, you were looking for something that... Uh, something in the mountains for sunrise. But do I dog. get it correct? Sunrise is sunrise, the morning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, I like you a lot. <laughs> oh. So go. you are in the mountains, high altitude. We have a nice um, uh, winemaker, the St. Jodenkellerei in, in Visper Termin. It's only 1,200 meters. So they do a wonderful Alpine Haida. So I think it will do the effect also in the morning. Okay, I think that, that that's going to do the, the trick. Uh, Emma, over to you, has something to do with Wimbledon and uh, all those punnets of strawberries you have. Yes, a kilo of strawberries, please, Chandra. What, what do I drink with it? But please, I'm, I'm on my own, so let's make this, let's not go to bananas. No, I don't really know how a kilo of, of strawberries looks, how much this is, but I, I think to make it easier to enjoy them, I will stay in, in England, you know, you're in Wimbledon, so take a, a sparkling wine from the UK, like a pet nut. I, a very nice one I discovered recently is Anchor Hill. And you can um, you can mix it with the strawberries or just with the, next to the strawberries. So you can do even a nice cocktail with strawberries and pet nut sparkling wine. I will have a go. Thank you very much indeed. Absolutely up for that one. Thank you, Chandra. Excellent. Chandra, you're heading off traveling, uh, I guess, soon off, off to Italy, correct? I'm off to Italy and, and to Tuscany next week to, to see some wineries and then to Rome. And I just heard that it's 40 degrees in Rome. So I will not drink too much then. Very good. Alexandra, back to Bern, I guess, quite soon. 
Soon back to Ben, yes. Very good. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there, uh, just coming to the end of the program. Uh, Chandra Kurt, uh, of course, regular contributor, uh, Alexander Andrist uh, from Swiss Info, thanks very much uh, for joining us today. Also, uh, Christian Jot Jenny from Sam Maritz, uh, James Chambers, our man in Bangkok, uh, and also Saul Taylor, uh, editor of the just launched Sablos, uh, joined us a little bit earlier. Our producers today, Desiree Bandley and Emma Nelson, our studio manager in Zurich, of course, Desiree, and back in London, David Stevens, waking up early on a Sunday morning uh, and uh, on, on the desk for us there. I'm Tyler Brule. Monocle on Sunday is back next week. I'll be on the program. Not sure if I'm going to be in Zurich, but uh, Emma Nelson and I will be around. Have a good week. Goodbye. <laughs>